This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Thursday, February 15th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about, you guessed it, Madam Web. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Okay, Brad, we've been waiting for this day for a long time, and it's finally here. Madam Web is in theaters, and... Uh, Whew, boy. Okay. So um, I actually do think that this movie is worthy of uh, a full on like beat by beat breakdown. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about the critical reaction to the movie and our general thoughts. You had a chance to see this at a, um, a press screening and I saw it like on opening day yesterday with like a normal crowd of three people in the middle of the afternoon. What was the vibe like in the room of presumably other critics when when you saw the movie and um yeah what do you think the the reaction was like there well the excitement was palpable there was cheering and clapping um there was a couple standing ovations um people were wearing (laughs) wearing their their madam web helmets and and suits um it was a riot let me tell you uh no it was it was pretty bleak um there were there was audible laughter after several lines during the screening um, and so, so something that happens after press screenings, um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but, uh, sometimes the publicists, uh, are there and they ask for like brief reactions from critics just so they can like report back to the studio and whatnot. Um, and I don't always, uh, get asked just depends on who I get caught by and whatnot. Uh, but, and this one, they stopped me and I just, I was just like, I was, I was like, I'm sorry, this was awful. <laughs> this, was, this was not a good movie. It was, it was boring and nonsensical. And I heard other people talking about it and no one else really had, uh, anything, anything all that great to say either. Okay. So yeah, I was going to get into our, our general thoughts and you've, um, you've laid out a few of them there. Uh, I guess without getting, getting into any spoilers, Brad, cause we're going to get into that very shortly. Um, yeah, expand on that a little bit. Tell me about why you thought this movie was not good. Uh, it's just, it's a super messy story. There's nothing all exciting that's done with like Madam Web as, as a character. I, I do feel like that there's a little bit of like potential here to ha- have done like a cool, 
uh, supernatural thriller because like it does kind of have elements of Final Destination and like I feel like if it wasn't like so unnecessarily tied to you know to spider-man and trying to like introduce these other uh spider characters and stuff like that for for a future um that certainly isn't promised and that we'll likely never see that like there there might have been some kind of cool movie here but otherwise it's just like um the villain isn't interesting like i don't understand why this is happening especially in a world where there isn't a spider-man yet um <laughs> i you know i just like I, I i don't understand like what what the impetus behind like feeling like they had to make this this movie was it just feels like sony has no idea what to do with like the roster of characters um in spider-man's rogue gallery um because yeah this it was just an absolute mess and even the stuff that they tried to like tie in and wink and nod to it felt like it was like such a half-hearted like yeah here's here's a thing but like whatever <laughs> yeah yeah we'll talk about those uh moments in in detail uh very shortly but i have to say that i agree with you brad i was hoping to go into this because I, I knew that like by the time i saw it i had heard some of the reactions from people like you who had seen early uh screenings of it and i was like okay this movie seems to be as bad as the trailer made it seem uh, what if I am the one who notices that it's actually a secret masterpiece? I was like really <laughs> hoping that, you know, something in this movie would jump out at me and I'd be like, aha, I'm seeing, you know, something that nobody else is seeing. And I understand, you know, the, the true meaning of this movie or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, none of that actually happened. And um, yeah, I just had a, a pretty bad time. I kind of feel like this is one of those movies that um, is not so bad that um i saw a rolling stones review i think it was compare this to basically saying like this is the cats of uh superhero movies um and i i, I didn't see cats but uh, everything i heard about that made it seem like at least maybe there was something interesting about watching that because it's like such a train wreck and this movie i found to be disappointing in that i didn't actually think it was like uh you know nothing about it really made me mad or like um, garnered any strong emotion one way or another. I mean, I had several things that I thought were just absolutely ridiculous, but like I, there wasn't enough here where I was just like, oh man, it's actually kind of fun to lean into how bad this movie is. I just kind of thought it was like really dull um, for most of the runtime. So uh, I don't know if you had any any thoughts along those lines at all. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing is like, I feel like if they maybe would have just leaned a little bit more into like making it camp or something like that. And camp is hard to do and like intentionally and make it genuine. You know, it, it takes a real uh, special kind of filmmaker to do that. But like there are there are elements, especially when they use like the very 2003 soundtrack that feel like um they, they could have done something to make it like make at least trick us into thinking that like we know we have like a cheesy dumb movie here but like just just have fun with us yeah um but but yeah it's everything else is just it's taken far too seriously to like e ever be able to do that yeah so like when marvel back in the day when marvel was in dire straits in like the 1990s and they were like approaching bankruptcy they licensed the film rights to spider-man out to sony pictures and that's why Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies came out, they became like a huge hit. And then like at that point, Sony was like, oh, this can actually make us a lot of money. We're never going to relinquish these rights to this character back to Marvel. We're just going to keep making Spider-Man and Spider-Man adjacent movies forever, basically. And they have like 900 other characters in the Spider-Man 
uh, roster of, of the rogues gallery and all these characters. And so that's why we've seen movies like Venom and Morbius and these movies that like are not really officially connected to the Marvel Studios stuff. And this is the latest one of those. And this to me feels like the one that feels the most like a contractual obligation. Like it feels like them basically saying like, okay, what is the least interesting way that we can make a movie that is technically Spider-Man related, but like barely get by on a technicality in terms of keeping these, uh, you know, retaining these rights or whatever. So um, I just thought this movie was like so lifeless, which is um, it, it kind of mirrored Dakota Johnson's like disaffected line readings in my mind. She's just like, She's not uh, the actress to build a an exciting superhero franchise around. So yeah. um, I don't know. We'll talk about more uh, about her more in just a minute. Um, actually, let's take a break and then we'll get into like a, a beat by beat breakdown of this thing. Okay, so we start out, Brad, in 1973 in the Peruvian Amazon, and Cassie Webb's mom is explaining to her security guard, who's named Ezekiel Sims, how she is hunting for a specific type of spider because it's peptides supercharge the powers and have like healing capabilities and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's this conversation about uh, a group of people called Las Aranas who are a type of spider people who are the subject of local legend. Um, Cassie's mom finds the spider and Sims immediately steals it and ends up accidentally shooting her in the process. And she is saved by these Las Aranas people who take her to this water cave and basically coax a spider into biting her in the chest right before she gives birth and dies. Um, it sounds so much more ridiculous when you have to say it so matter-of-factly. <laughs> really does. So uh, talk me through like your reaction as this movie is opening, because I kind of felt like we were on, on shaky footing from the word go here. But w- what was your reaction to this opening scene? Yeah, I mean... Uh... <laughs> It's just it, it's it's all so so silly and and contrived. Like the fact that there this this pregnant pregnant woman is in the, in the Amazon looking for these spiders. And like granted, we do find out later that there's a good reason why there's a pregnant woman in in the Amazon looking for these spiders. She mm-hmm. has noble personal uh, intentions, um, but like it's just the way it all plays out is is so silly. It, and it, really, it just sets the stage because this entire movie feels like it was made. Uh, in the year in which it's mostly set, 2003. Like, it feels like it came out around the time that, like, Daredevil and Elektra did. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, what did you make of the whole Las Aranas thing? Because they, they, I wouldn't say they're a big part of this movie, but they are, are, are a part of this movie. And, like, their look is really... Um, well, actually, I guess that's part of my problem. I can't really tell you what they look like because the movie kind of cuts away so quickly that I never really got a good sense of like who these people are, what their society is like. They're just kind of like introduced as like a Deux Machina type of thing that it's going to come up later, you know? So like, what, what was your reaction to the the idea that there's like this local legend of spider super people that actually exists in this world? Yeah, it's just strange because like it feels like something that like would have been established in like in a very old comic book as that would tie into like the origins of Spider-Man somehow that like like that Spider-Man got bit by this the spider that gave Las Aranas their powers like uh, you know so long ago and, mm-hmm. and and somehow that's that's what happened that that's how you know the, that why that spider gave him superpowers and whatnot but like it, it's such a forced thing in here and like it's it's so odd because there's so many things in here that feel like they are tied to like the origin of Spider-Man things that would like set up what Spider-Man becomes, but they like, 
they strangely take cues from something that doesn't exist. And so like, like lots of Ranias, like they, uh, they, they paint their body in, in red and then they have like basically what looks kind of like black webbing around them. It's, it's kind of like almost like vines, I guess, that are like tied all around their body mm-hmm. that, that kind of mirror the web style that is uh, typically seen all over Spider-Man suit. Um, and so it's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's all very strange. And then like, I don't understand, I don't understand like, just like, exactly like why a character like ezekiel sims like first of all exists and then second <laughs> second of all like just like where this motivation came from like oh if i can find the spider i know i can totally get superpowers <laughs> yeah it, it like sims is such a bizarre character like we find out later that by stealing the spider he has been cursed with visions of the future and you know, we, we jump ahead to 2003 and eventually discover that he's like evidently spent decades dreaming of the same three young women in spider costumes who team up to kill him. So he basically wants to pull a minority report and stop them from committing this crime before they do it. And so in order to achieve that, he sleeps with an NSA agent and somehow steals technology from her that allows his uh, computer wizard, who's played by, I think her name is uh, Zosia Mamet, to spy on anyone at any time and hack into every single camera in the entire country to find these women. And it's basically like the God's eye from Fast and Fear and the, the Fast and Furious movies, right? Yeah. Um, but like he, what is he, he, he is also immortal, I guess, because he looks exactly the same as he did 30 years before? Uh, are, are we meant to think that he, or, or am I just like reading too much into his powers there? Did you, did you get the sense that like immortality or some sort of like, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it, it, that that was one of his abilities or something? At the very least, it seems like he didn't age very much. I, I do think that he does have a little gray in his hair by the time we, we catch up with him in, again in 2003. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know what his like end game is. Like, okay, so you have these powers, but now you're cursed with like apparently getting killed by these three women in the future who becomes spider like super people. Um, but like, what are you doing in the meantime? Like, why did you need these powers? Like what, what's your fucking deal? <laughs> yeah. And it, it kind of seems like maybe he somehow like got rich off of the, cause there's that moment where he like walks into his apartment and he's got like this uh, incredible New York city apartment. And there's this big, um, display case kind of in the middle of it where he keeps the spiders and it's, got, it's like a, got this terrarium or something that's very like well lit and like it kind of seems like he's made money from the existence of this spider somehow but it never really gets into that and then like I, I don't know it just kind of seems like his life is fine mostly and he's not like an evil supervillain who's trying to take over the world or do anything really like uh bad that we know of he's just like his entire purpose in this movie is just to kill these girls so he stays alive it's just yeah, a- there's, there's no indication that like that them killing him is going to stop some like grand plan that he has yeah yeah really really odd stuff okay so in 2003 we meet with the adult uh cassie webb she is a disaffected emt who we're told can't be pinned down man and she's like non-committal and uh, she refers to herself as a stray. So um, let's talk about Dakota Johnson in this. Not, not only does she just refer herself to a stray, but she talks to a cat. <laughs> yes, she does, of course. <laughs> um, I, I just found this performance to be uh, just baffling across the board. Like Dakota Johnson, I, I have not seen every movie that she's in. I know that she's been in some stuff that people really like. Um, 
I kind of, I'm just like kind of baffled at, at her entire like uh, persona and like her, her, the fact that she's like an A-list actress. I just don't really get her whole thing. Um, so watching a movie where she's supposed to be, you know, th- this figure that like pulls us through the story where it seems like Dakota Johnson, the actress doesn't really care about what's going on. And it kind of seems like Cassie Webb, the character doesn't really care very much what's going on. It's just a, a very odd experience. But um, what did you think about her performance in this? No, absolutely the same. I, I think Dakota Johnson, I um, I haven't seen a ton of her uh, dramatic work, um, but I have seen her in things where she's she's kind of supposed to be more funny. Um, like she, she had a small role in Five Year Engagement. Um, you know, she has that big part in Social Network. She's, she's very good in Peanut Butter Falcon. Uh, and in this, like, she's obviously supposed to be this, like, checked out kind of disaffected person. But, like, at the same time, it doesn't help that the script isn't interesting. And so it makes, like, what she's saying just sounds like she's bored doing it. And maybe she was, you know, because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the press store hasn't indicated anything otherwise. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's it was just so hard to, like, buy into anything that she was saying or, or anything that w- that was happening. It was it was all just so boring. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that she's like a terrible actress. I just don't necessarily think she was right for this part. Like, I, I've liked her a lot in uh, Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, she's great in that. Yeah, um, she was actually, I thought she was like her her shtick kind of worked in um, The Lost Daughter. I don't know if you saw that one a couple years ago yet, as well. No. Um, but so I, I think like, you know, when uh, certain directors and, and storytellers like uh, collaborate with her on material that sort of jibes with her star persona, um, there's possibility there and it just does not seem like this matched her her vibe at all um so she is partners with ben parker who is played by adam scott in this movie and we'll talk about i think the the potential connections a little bit later on of like what that means in terms of the spider-man mythos or whatever but i was kind of hoping that i I like adam scott a lot i was kind of hoping that he would be a bright spot in this movie but unfortunately, Brad, he's given absolutely nothing to do here. Like even yeah. the scenes where he's supposed to be charming, the dialogue is just abysmal. There's this exchange where they open fortune cookies. And I wrote this down and Cassie says, uh, Cassie's fortune cookie says like, you will. And then there's a smudge on it. And Adam Scott has to say, the quote is, do you know what this means? It means that their printer is broken. We can't eat here anymore. Yeah. And then they both <laughs> laugh. <laughs> and laugh. <laughs> like, oh, shucks, aren't we great pals who like to have fun? And it's just like, that's the best when, you can do. <laughs> when, this ha- when this happened, all I could think of was the scene in Popstar when the faux TMZ crew is, starts laughing and they all start <laughs> laughing maniacally. Like, I wanted that to happen in this scene. <laughs> Yes, with the uh, the um, ever increasing size of the uh, of the cup or whatever. In yeah. That scene. yeah. Um, so, how, what did you think about Adam Scott here? Did did he like save any of this movie for you? No, I mean no, because and it's because they don't really give him anything to do. Like that's the biggest thing. Like it's not like Adam Scott is bad in this role. You know, he probably would would have been a good Uncle Ben, uh, young Uncle Ben Parker. You know, uh, given like a decent script, but there's just there's no real character here. You know. Yeah, he, he and he disappears for like a huge chunk of the movie. He seems to be like a major figure in Cassie's life. And then as soon as she gets these uh, clairvoyant powers, he just kind of is is like, well, it's a little bit after she gets the powers, but he's basically sidelined for like a huge chunk of the movie. So, um, yeah, like so she dies saving somebody on a bridge. She, she is trapped in a car and she falls in the water and she has like this superhero vision moment where her powers sort of become unlocked inside of her. And Ben Parker 
resuscitates her and they have, this is the first repetition of a conversation where she kind of like sees the same thing happen. It's the, you know, her power's kicking in. She doesn't really understand what's going on. She shakes it off like it's no big deal. And then soon after that, while responding to a, an emergency outside of a, a, what seems to be a bizarre warehouse that is rigged to blow or something. I, don't, I couldn't really track exactly what the conversation was there. She has this vision of one of their coworkers dying and then he dies. So she thinks that she can't change the future, but she realizes that she actually does have the power to change the course of events because she saves a bird that has flown into her apartment window. Um, so I, I don't really know. I mean, there's not really much to say about like, there's not really much commentary I, I have about this part of the movie or anything. It just kind of felt like, all right, let's get to it. You know, we're kind of stringing things along here. Did you have any, anything stand out to you in that stretch of the movie at all? There's just, there's just so many moments of contrived dialogue where they're like, they, they, they needed to like tell the audience, like what they, the character was thinking or something like that. Like, so her saying out loud and like, no, cause you can't change anything. It's just like, yeah. oh my God, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, so Emma Roberts shows up. She's playing Mary Parker and Richard Parker is her husband and he is like off somewhere and and there's this awkward baby shower scene where Mary Parker is about to give birth to Peter Parker, but like she comes close to revealing the baby's name but doesn't actually make it, make it explicit because why? I don't really, because this whole Sony marvel thing is so freaking weird like that's the best answer i can come up with like is there is there any particular reason brad that you uh, were able to glean as to why they didn't just come out and say hey this is baby peter parker here like what what is the thinking there so my thought process was they they wanted to kind of be cheeky about it and not be quite so obvious that like it was supposed to be peter parker but part of me thinks that they when they realized this movie was so bad they didn't want to shoehorn themselves into like making this potentially canon, like by having those characters be the mother of like the Peter Parker that we know. Cause the way the timeline would work is this would, this would probably have, have to be Tom Holland's Peter Parker being born here. And, but I also wonder if maybe like they had some kind of thought that, well, Hey, if by some miracle we get to do a sequel, maybe they wanted to have some kind of like twist where like Peter Parker isn't their son and it's somebody else. And there may, and there is no, spider-man in that universe or something mm, mm-hmm. um but because i don't think that they have any I, they're, I think they're fully allowed to use peter parker because they own the rights to spider-man like marvel was the one who had to like strike a deal to share those rights so i yep. think sony can do whatever the fuck they want with peter parker i think it was just them trying to be clever or potentially give themselves an out to be like oh nope it's not peter parker it's somebody different <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Okay, so Cassie has this vision of three Gen Z girls, Julia Cornwall, played by Sydney Sweeney, Maddie Franklin, played by Celeste O'Connor, and Anya Corazon, played by Isabella Merced, being murdered on a train. So she convinces them to get off, and they barely escape Sims, who is now wearing what is basically a Spider-Man suit. Um, First of all, like, why is this man wearing a Spider-Man suit, Brad? Do you have any any insight into why he's dressed this way that's the thing is like i have no idea because it doesn't seem like he has the same kind of powers that would require him to have a suit like that and like what is he doing in his life that he needs that suit like he's he's not fighting crime he's not like it doesn't seem like he's like a stealth thief or anything like that like why the fuck do you have this suit (laughs) yeah it just it does not make any sense to me like first of all did he physically sew it like toby Maguire's peter parker did in the sam raimi movies like where did he get it and also it looks kind of like 
Las Aranas, like the the you know Peruvian spider people who I do I do him. I do think that was his, that was his, the inspiration, you know, because because he obviously in the beginning he's the one who like n- knows and believes that Las Aranas exist. So he's probably seen you know drawings of them or something like that if he, if he hasn't actually seen them. And so I think that that was the inspiration, but but there's no reason as to why. Yeah, and he he seems like completely um, flustered and and sort of like haunted by what they've done. Like they cursed him because he stole this spider. And so for what seems like decades, he's been having the same dream of these girls killing him. And so that would be like, I don't know, it would be like the beast from Beauty and the Beast dressing up like the enchantress who curses him in the beginning of the movie right like <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense why he would like fashion his entire pers- his, his whatever hero villain persona after these characters that uh that are responsible for like causing him so much torment in life i don't know and then like he also has the ability he's like more powerful than spider-man maybe because he can he has like some clairvoyant powers of his own he can climb on walls and he can also poison people with like a, a paralytic venom just by touching them so i I was just very confused about why he would wear this suit at all like in a crowded place like new york city if his only goal is to kill these three girls it just seems to make more sense to me to like be subtle about it or try to like take out these targets in like a quiet way instead of calling attention to yourself by wearing a a costume like this, because there are no other superheroes in this world in 2003 yet. Right. So he's the only one, like you're probably going to draw national attention to yourself by doing this. So I was just like, you know, I I was spun out in a web of questions about what the hell this guy's doing and why. So, um, at, I guess at this point, the, the women spend the next big chunk of this movie like on the run from Sims and they go out into the woods to have a debrief about their situation. And Cassie leaves them there for three hours while she goes home and like looks through her mom's notebook. Yeah. Uh, and then there's this action scene in the diner when she saves the girls from Sims. So. Uh, what stood out to you, I guess? What did you want to mention about this part of the movie? Just just the most nonsensical decisions made by characters. Like, first of all, what a remarkable coincidence that all three of these girls are on this train uh, at the same time for her to, to, to witness this. Um, and then second of all, like, just I don't understand, like, why she thinks it's a good idea to just leave them in the woods somewhere. Like, I think ostensibly it's because the technology, like the NSA technology, there's no cameras in the woods. So like she thinks they're safe there, but they don't, they also don't really have any food or water or yeah, anything. Exactly. They, like, <laughs> like at least give them like some supplies or something like that, or, or maybe just go and get your mom's shit and come back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Does it take three hours? Like is the implication that they drove three hours away from the city center to find these woods? And that's why, or I guess like an hour and a half each way or yeah. something. Is, and that's why, I don't know. Um, just a really strange stretch there. Uh, I, I thought the diner scene was like very weird. Like that that's the um, what kicks off the trailer for this movie, the one and only trailer from Adam Webb that was released. Uh, and I just thought it was very odd because the girls are like dancing on the table to Britney Spears is toxic. And there's like a bunch of like, uh, I don't know, high school uh, jocks or something sitting around. And like, they're not really characters. And like these girls don't feel like, dancing on a table is something that they would do in this situation, especially when Cassie has been like, this guy is hunting you like, you yeah. know, stay quiet or yeah, whatever. This, I, I, I will say this was one moment though, where like, I felt like 
they almost should have like gone in the direction of like doing like a like a grindhouse movie or like some kind of like sexploitation movie because like that's what this started to feel like in a way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely got that grindhouse vibe as well. Um, they go to a, a hotel, I think, right after this, and right, right after she saves the girls from sims and she teaches them how to do cpr and makes it clear that they're gonna have to work as a team to take over for each other to keep the cpr going and it's like gee i wonder if this will ever factor into the rest of the movie at some point so uh just yeah very like um you know not subtle filmmaking at all um cassie leaves the girls with ben parker and goes to peru and seemingly just like walks through the jungle at random and happens to find the exact location where her mom took a photo 30 years before. Like she literally holds up the photo, lowers it. And the terrain is the same as in the photo. It was like one of the dumbest things that I've seen in a long time. It it reminded (laughs) me of um, the same thing happens in star Wars, the rise of Skywalker where uh, Daisy Ridley holds up that knife with a map. The knife knife is the stupidest fucking thing in star (sighs) Wars. Oh my God. The worst MacGuffin. And she just so happens to be standing in the exact spot at the exact distance where holding the, where like the, uh, I think it's the floating ruins of the Death Star align perfectly with the knife as yeah, she happens exactly. to hold it up in front of her face. It's in, just the, like, in the middle of a haphazard planet where waves are crashing <laughs> and surely moving debris all the time. Yeah, so dumb. It's, it's dumber in Rise of Skywalker than it is here, but it's still pretty dumb in this movie. Um, so she ends up meeting up with this like wise, sage old member of Las Aranas who gives her this version of like the with great power comes great responsibility line and then shoves her out of her own body so she can see visions of why her mom was in the Amazon in the first place. And it's played as this big reveal that she's there because a doctor diagnosed Cassie in the womb with a debilitating disease. And the mom is like, not going to take no for an answer. So she travels to the Amazon extremely late in her pregnancy to, do what brad like what exactly is her plan i mean basically she, well, she she hopes that like the whatever is in the spider the dna the peptides whatnot will will be a cure for her daughter's disease yeah but like i don't know she's so, also, I, I i think my biggest question is she's obviously not a scientist right I, I, well i i kind of think she is meant is she? to be a scientist but like she also looks like she's a professional photographer or something yeah, or as well explorer, but and like so did she did she happen to like just jump in on like a group that was already like trying to research these spiders because there's a whole like community of other people around where in the in the opening of the movie like there's other scientists and people there who are researching and want want to find this spider too so like did she somehow like just recruit a whole team to go with her? Did she like piggyback off somebody else that was already there? What, and what was, she, how was she anticipating to like figure this out to be able to like help cure her daughter? Yeah. That's the big question I have is like, you know, she's very, very late in her pregnancy. It seems like, I mean, she gives birth like um, pretty much immediately after we meet her. So she, we can, it's safe to say she's very late in her pregnancy. Right. And so yeah. she, she thinks that she's not only going to find this very, very rare spider, but also that she'll be able to somehow synthesize a cure and then what, like inject it into her unborn daughter. Like that kind of sounds like it's her plan. And if it's not her plan, why wouldn't she just wait to go to Peru until after she's given birth? Like that seems way safer and it would make way more sense. So I I don't know. I was just like, uh, you know, even like the basic fundamental premise of this movie, like the the whole thing on which this is built, it just kind of like falls away, you know, when you, when you try to think about it for more than two seconds. So um, anyway, Cassie ends up being just fine when she's born and she 
realizes from this guy that like, oh, one of her powers is that maybe she can be in multiple places at once if she is able to sort of master these clairvoyant abilities. So she comes back to New York and then Mary Parker is about to have her baby and the girls get spotted by Sims because they're trying to take Mary Parker to the hospital. And uh, then there's this, I guess like you could call it an action scene because there's not really that much action in this movie, which is another weird thing about it. But there's this action scene where Sims is dressed in a spider suit and he lands on the hood of their car. Uh, ben Parker is driving and he's about to like blow them up with a bomb. Right. And then Cassie comes crashing out of, I think it's a Calvin Klein ad in her ambulance and like knocks Sims off of the car that he's standing on. And a bomb goes like rolling away and everyone seems to be saved except the bomb rolls under another car and it blows up and no one cares about yeah. that at all. Like the, these characters are supposed to be heroes potentially, or at least Cassie is. Quite a haphazard attempt at like, at saving them. I mean, like we'll just let that explosive roll somewhere. Yeah. This whole movie, it kind of feels like there is no, it feels like there's nobody else in New York city. You know, it's like such a small movie. Like, yeah. Ben Parker's speeding around trying to drive Emma Roberts' character to the hospital. Like, there's no traffic. There's no pedestrians to speak of, really. It just kind of doesn't feel like an authentic place to me. Um, and, like, this action sequence, too, really feels like one of the the best ways of illustrating, like, how they had no idea how to make, like, the visualization or use of her powers interesting. Because, like, if she's able to, like, see outcomes and, like, what's going to happen, stuff like that, in theory, she should be able to, like, do things that are, like, predictive and she can use things to her advantage. But, like, every every way that she tries to do it is just so, like, haphazard and, like, not calculated whatsoever. Yeah, 100%. I'm really glad you brought that up because I forgot to mention earlier, there's a scene where uh, Cassie and Ben Parker are... Uh, answering a call outside of the the warehouse that is going to be the um, setting for the climax of the movies. We'll talk about that in just a second. But there's this part, it's a really quick moment. I wonder if you clocked this, Brad, where like uh, Ben and one of his colleagues have strapped a patient onto like a rolling gurney thing and they're calling out his injuries as they move him toward an ambulance. And Cassie is crouched over somebody else and is like administering treatment to this this guy who's injured. And she just like happens to look up and see Ben and this other guy, you know, rolling this patient along. And she's like, wait, check his abdomen. And Ben Parker's like, huh, what's going on? And like pokes around the guy's stomach for a second. And then he's like, internal bleeding. Nice catch. (laughs) And then like, so she like diagnoses this patient from like 10 feet away. And it makes me think that like Ben Parker's terrible at his job. (laughs) Like if she had used her, her abilities to discover that there was some kind of hidden problem with that patient that wasn't easily identifiable or something like that. Right. Like that, that seems like it would be a heroic use of her powers. And like, exactly what you're just talking about, like a way for Sony and the filmmakers to kind of like lean into, okay, Madam Webb could see all these outcomes. Here's how she's like a heroic figure. She can save people or whatever. And like that ties into her job and like everything about this character. And that's not what happens. Like the movie, I guess, just wants us to think that Ben Parker is, is negligent or just like bad at his job in this moment. So yeah. uh, I don't know, really, really odd stuff, but then there's that big um, climax at the the warehouse where there's like fireworks going off and it just, it all feels so silly. So um, I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about like the, the big, uh, I got quote unquote explosive climax where a Pepsi Cola sign is like fe- prominently featured in the scene? 
it's yeah, it's just such a weird thing because like obviously there are certain locations around New York City where there's still the remnants of like the old advertising of and stuff like that that used to be there. Um, and so like it, it would be one thing if there was like a famous old building that was used for something completely different other than you know uh, being a Pepsi plant and this sign was there. But like there's why is it an old fireworks factory that is like apparently like in disarray and like just just ready to go up at any minute with this perfectly fine Pepsi Cola sign above it? Um, and then like it's just such a piss poor setting for like what is supposed to be like the big action sequence finale. And even even in this moment where like she has somewhat figured out like how to hone her powers in a way, every reaction she has is still just so reckless and like without any real thought. Like she, we see all the different things that are going to happen with like the, um, with Ezekiel like jumping up through the roof and like the, where the explosions happen and stuff like that. But it feels like she's still just flying by the seat of her pants all the time. Yeah, and she doesn't feel. You don't get the sense that the character is becoming more confident, even though she seems to be like slowly coming to a better understanding of what her powers are. So it, you're not able to like emotionally track her development as a character because she's just so flat all the time that it's just kind of like, okay, do you even care what's what's going on here? You know. Um, so and like the relationship, the dynamic between her and the the Gen Z girls are just like it's so forced and like you know, by this point in the movie, the, by the time the climax rolls around, these women are supposed to be feeling more and more like a, a found family unit or something where they're like relying on each other and like sticking together and have each other's backs and all that. But the writing is just so bad that it just kind of feels like, okay, we're just like moving along here and like, let's go. And so she ends up saving them by using her powers to be in multiple places at once. And she well, kills now, the... Well, before we walk, we'll go past that, I would oh, want yeah. to talk about just how like ridiculous that is and how there's not really any like sense as far as like how that works or like whether it's like even beneficial because like, I guess when she splits herself off in like this, you know, spiritual plane kind of way, she can, she she, like very quickly gives like a, it's going to be okay. And it's like, okay, but are you like actually like helping them get, (laughs) get get up? And like, what, like what are the limitations of, of your abilities here? Yeah, I did notice that she did that for the, she kind of like, yeah, just like pops up next to the first person and like whispers in their ear or something like, yeah, it's going to be fine or whatever. And this person is like dangling from, you know, a high location or, you know, part of that sign or whatever it is. I did clock that in the second uh, of the three times that, that her body like splits off into this spectral form that she's like, grab my hand. And like the, the, one of the girl characters is actually able to interact like physically with this sort of like ghost version of Dakota Johnson. So uh, I think there is like some sort of physical component that works there, but like it just, it just feels like such a weird way to utilize those powers because you, you would think that what, what really the way it should work is that if she's a- able to see all these different outcomes, she should just know what to do to stop all those things from, from happening after, yes. after experiencing it the first time. So like she didn't have to be like fast, like the flash or, or anything like that, but it's just that like, she she knows where to put things, you know, or how to arrange things so that like no one will get hurt like the second time around, basically. Yeah, it's like how um, Andy Samberg in Palm Springs is like, you know, when we when I, I think I forget if he it's the first time that he meets Kristen Milioti's character in that movie. But like he like slips through the dance floor and is like kind of like dodging people that he you know, a previous version of him yeah. ran into and like he knows to to make these moves now to avoid, you know, in order to like Or of course ground groundhog day when like he you know steals from the armored truck and like just knows everything that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like th- there's precedent for this and and I always like those scenes where those characters where it's clear to me that those characters have been through 
you know, a bunch of different versions of this and have arrived at the most efficient way to get things done. It's just like a cool visual thing that you can do as a filmmaker to, to yeah. communicate that information to the audience. And they never really do that in this movie and, and, all, gr- so. and granted, she, she's not experiencing things in the same way that like the characters from those movies are. She, like, she only has like a limited window to get a grasp on everything. But, but even then, you would think that like the, the, the breadth of her powers would allow her to experience that in such a way that she can figure all that out. Because the whole idea is that she's supposed to be able to like see the future and be in multiple places at once, essentially. Mm-hmm. So like w- knowing all of that, like you would think that you, she could easily do something to make it at least seem more, more slick, you know, the way she yeah. went about doing this. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she, the bad guy dies. It's not even like a particularly interesting death for this guy or anything. It's just kind of like, all right, well that happened. And she falls into the river and she's seemingly blinded by like a rogue firework or something. And the girls end up performing the CPR on her to save her life because she taught them to do that 20 minutes before. And like, they kind of have to do that in order to meet the rules of a screenplay or whatever. Um, and the movie ends with like this Situation that reminds me a little bit of uh, the character of Oracle in like the Batman comics, which is, uh, I believe, Batgirl, who has been paralyzed by the Joker. Um, she kind of like sits atop this tower and like uses technology to keep watch over the city or whatever. And that's kind of what the role Madam Web seems to have at the end of this movie. She's in like, uh, you know, this sort of like. I don't know. It's not a floating wheelchair like uh, Professor X or anything. It's such but it's a like, weird wheelchair. It's yeah. like it's one that where like she's almost like sitting halfway up but not standing. Yeah, I, I couldn't really understand exactly. And I honestly what that don't was. even know why she's in it. Like, did she did she get paralyzed and we missed it? I don't. Yeah, not that I know of. But is, it, is, it, is it easier for her to just be in a wheelchair rather than walk around with like a stick, like like Daredevil does? You know, when, yeah. he, when he's uh, you know when he's Matthew Murdock. I like I don't understand. Yeah, and she's got these these weird sunglasses on, and it's clear that she can go like kind of like yeah, like I, I guess she she's mastered her abilities where she can see in maybe in the same a similar way that Daredevil can or something like that, but. So there's the promise, this movie ends with the promise of these girls being superheroes one day, but not now. And there's this real triumphant tone and like the, the I think Dakota Johnson's character gives this voiceover at the end where she's like, you know, it's going to happen one day, we'll be ready. And then the final line of the movie, Brad, I wrote this down. This is my favorite. You know, the best thing about the future, it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) That's it. And like okay so the sequel will never happen like what are yeah, you this talking is, about i this is i laughed genuinely out loud at this because i'm like oh my god like you're basically celebrating the demise of your own movie because like you know what's great about all this it hasn't happened yet <laughs> no one gives a shit <laughs> i when i was sitting in the theater i i may have said it aloud i don't know because there were only three other people in the theater i don't remember if i said it aloud or if i just thought it but as soon as that happened i was just like surf dracula and i don't know if that means anything to you Brad, but there, no. there's a, a tweet from 2021 that uh i'm gonna read it right now from uh at topher florence the the tweet is back in the day if you did a tv show called surf dracula you'd see that fool surfing every week in new adventures but in the streaming era the entire first season got to be a long ass flashback to how he got the surfboard until you finally get to see him surf for five minutes in the finale and so <laughs> i was just like well that's what's going on here because the trailer for this movie seemed to promise to us that Sydney Sweeney and Isabella Merced and these other characters are going to be dressed up as these spider women and actually like participating in the action in some meaningful way. And then the movie just kind of the, the real movie is basically saying like, nope, that isn't going to happen. The only reason we see them in these costumes are for 
you know, very quick glimpses of flash forwards into the future and or flashes forward, I guess. And like, that's it. Like, th- there you go. Like maybe in a sequel one day, but like the movie itself kind of seems to undercut that at the very end. And it, it seems to know that it's never going to happen. So what, what did you make of the fact that these characters were teased to be one thing and then the movie just kind of like pulls the rug out from under. I mean, it's that, that just makes it clear that like they knew that they needed to put something in the trailer to like get butts in the seats because there was no way the movie without seeing those characters in spider suits is anywhere near as interesting as it turns out to be, which is not very interesting at all. <laughs> um, so like if you don't, if you don't have those moments where like you can show those characters becoming those spider people, like who gives a shit, you know, like they, they basically needed something to like, convince people but like oh yep this is definitely a spider-man movie there's totally spider people in it you're you're (laughs) gonna fucking love it so there's two other things i wanted to talk about before we wrap it up real quick and one of them is that like i I read uh whitney siebold wrote wrote the review for madam web for slash film and i'm I'm gonna link to that in the show notes he liked the movie more than we did and i think the most interesting thing about his review is that he sort of posited like this idea that like this movie in some ways is about this man resisting the idea of a new generation of women coming up under him and like, you know, trying to fight back against uh, progress, basically. That's kind of like a theme that you could look into, you know, you can read into this movie. Um, but I just think the villain is so played by uh, Tahar Rahim, by the way, is just like so boring and poorly conceived that like, yes, that's technically a reading that you can make, but you have to be very generous to make that reading because there's just like no engagement with what this villain is doing. And like the ADR is some of the worst that I've ever seen. Like with the, it it just seems like nothing he said on the set matches up with what the uh, movie would like us to believe that he said in those times. And it just kind of feels like this whole character is just like a complete misfire. Yeah, but that, I, I yeah was, cause I, I like that reading cause I did read his review. Um, cause I was curious what he thought and I, I did like that, but it's everything is just so muddled and messy that it just doesn't really come through or like succeed in that way. And I, I totally agree too with the, the depiction of the villain. Like, they, they had to do so much ADR that, like, they basically always edited around his character so that you couldn't ever see his face most of the time when he was talking because it seemed like they wrote 90% of his dialogue in post-production. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, really messy filmmaking there. Um, S.J. Clarkson is the director of this movie, and she's done, like, incredible TV stuff. Um, and she's been attached to a bunch of big projects over the years, but like, I, I just kind of feel bad for her. Cause I feel like this, this movie is just like a, a true mess. Um, so I, I was, I was bummed to see that, uh, somebody who I know is like a talented filmmaker produce something like this. And I, I have no idea like what the behind the scenes, uh, situation was that led to this movie ended up, you know, being released in the form that it was released in. I have no idea if there's like studio interference or if this is just like her vision or whatever, but, uh, Yikes, uh, big, big yikes there. So the last thing, Brad, to me, I found it really, really frustrating to watch a character like Madam Web be frustrated at, for most of this movie. And it kind of feels like the film has no stakes because so many things can be rewound or replayed or whatever. And that is a common trope in storytelling, right? Like Doctor Strange does it with the eye of Agamotto. And I was trying to remember why I wasn't as bothered by that trope when Dr. Strange did it as I was when Madam Webb did it. And I'm wondering if it just boils down to the fact that like, I was just simply more engaged with everything else in that movie across the board. So it was easier to forgive in Dr. Strange. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I agree with that. And also I think that like it helps, it it would be just a little way to, to fix I guess kind of, um, 
But like it's established that like using the eye of Agamotto is kind of like a last resort kind of thing. Like they're there. He's not supposed to mess with time, you know? So like it's, it's only something that he does like when he's truly desperate to use it in that way. So he, but here it doesn't seem like there's any like consequences or care for, of like how it affects the rest of the world. Like she kind of just has the ability to see what's about to happen and she, she can change it, you know, if she so chooses, but like, I think the other thing that really weakens it is that the scenes that like replay are also just not exciting. Like they're not interesting to see repeated. It's just like, Oh fuck, I got to watch this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like the diner scene, like you would think that, you know, him attacking these people would be, uh, yeah, at least like visually dynamic in some way or something. And it just kind of feels. And that, that scene also, yeah, I forgot to mention it's another moment where like she could have done something potentially cool but like what does she do she just drives the fucking taxi right into the front of the diner (laughs) (laughs) that's her move she just like drives cars into this guy i guess so uh okay so i guess my last question for you is is like did you have any fun with this movie or was it like so bad and so was it just like a miserable experience all the way through i i had some good laughs at a few lines of dialogue um when when zoja mamet's uh character um, looks up who Cassie Webb's mom is and says it to Ezekiel, and he's like, "Wait, did you say Webb?" <laughs> uh, there's just, there's just so many like just funny bad lines. Uh, when they when they did the re- responsibility lines, it's like when you when you take on this responsibility, great power will come. Just like give me a fucking break. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I I wish that I had fun in this movie. Like there there were a few moments where I like rolled my eyes and stuff, but it it just felt like um Colin Robinson, the energy vampire from uh, <laughs> What We Do in the Shadows, was like draining the life out of me as I watched this movie. It just yeah. was like it was uh yeah just sucking the life straight. I do out, think so. this will make a great uh, riff tracks movie one day though. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so all right, well there you have it, uh, Madam Web. Any any closing thoughts? Anything that we didn't touch on, Brad? Ugh, no, it doesn't even matter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, uh, I think I'm going to try to write an article called The Seven Most Ridiculous Moments in Madam Web Ranks by Our Our Headaches. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've not read that, uh, I'd encourage you to go to SlashFilm.com and check that out. Um, You can find much more about Madam Web. We have like an ending explained thing. We have a breakdown of the villain. uh, We have the review, a bunch of other stuff. Um, uh, You can find all that at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a bunch of things in the show notes as well, including that Surf Dracula tweet, in case anybody wants to bookmark that for their own personal use. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.